Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Unfortunately, history would seem to teach us that Christians love to argue, love to fall out with each other, split and divide, take the huff. This might explain why there are so many different churches, each with its USP, its unique selling point, each with its own reason to think that it's right and the others are wrong. There is some debate, but the indications are that there are somewhere between 22,000 and 33,000 Protestant denominations alone out there. And that's before we get to the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches with their various expressions. What a mess! What have we done to get to this point? What's wrong with us? How we long for the good old days of the New Testament church when all was sweetness and light. Or was it? Anyone who thinks that the early church was just one big happy band of pilgrims hasn't read their New Testament. From the earliest days, there was conflict, division, controversy. From the beginning, there were issues to squabble about, debates, potential schisms, actual schisms. Should the church be exclusive to Jews or open to Gentiles? Was it merely a sect of Judaism or was it meant to be a world faith with a universal appeal? What should the attitude be to the government of the day? Compliance or defiance? Was the ancient holy law of Moses now defunct and discredited? Should the new liberty of the gospel spell an end to moral restraint? Plenty of issues to get your teeth into. Plenty to argue about and fight over. And when you throw in a few tasty heresies filtering in from paganism and Gnosticism, you soon see that it was a myth. A myth. The notion of a, a tidy first century church bending in prayer, harmonious in good works, in a happy agreement of minds. Not so much. Throw in the experience of the church at Corinth as a, a case study in first century Christianity and there you find theological anarchy mingling with moral delinquency, rubbing shoulders with ecclesiastical chaos. So church disunity is nothing new. The old divisions don't disappear, they are simply reinvented in a new guise. There is nothing about our multicoloured tapestry of church life in 2019 that is new or startling. It seems that there's always been a broad spectrum of opinions, while there might have been for a, a fleeting, glorious instant, a brief sunburst for about five minutes 
in the life of the church, there might have been a time when it was all okay and we were all on the same page. But as soon as people started getting involved, like more than four at any one time, then the trouble began. And the reality of diversity entered the equation. And the long and often glorious but sometimes disappointing story of the church reveals that it was only when Christ was at the heart of everything, when the Holy Spirit was loose on the church, when that spirit of tolerance and humility was allowed to hold sway, it was only then that Christian people were enabled to learn, to appreciate the insights that each brought were able to stop making their finger-pointing-in-the-chest argument long enough to discover that maybe the other person had a point too. The tendency for the church to come apart at the seams is a tendency born out of that human need, that human desire to want to be right all the time. And it's been aggravated by the passage of time and by the crisis moments in the history of the church. We need to recognise that the church has been around for a very long time. Perhaps the surprise is not that it's divided, but that it has survived all those upheavals in such robust good health. But of course, whenever Christianity allowed itself to be mixed up with belligerent nationalism or the thirst for power or overweening pride or material ambition or pettiness of mind then the wedge was driven in even more fully more forcefully and the church shuddered and creaked and was riven asunder by those divisions brought about by those corrupting elements in the human character People put unhelpful labels on other people. And that isolated us and segregated us. And there was suspicion in the air. And denominations became locked in on their own image of their self-importance. Their own arrogant certainties. And ancient memories hardened into insularity. The spirit was imprisoned. The church became loveless. And oh boy, did we pay a high price for all of this. All this certainty that we all have. An economic cost, because what happened was, the new denomination built a church even bigger than the one next door. And we're, and we're able to say to them, see, we must be right, because God has blessed us with this magnificent building. Just at the corner, next door to yours. And bigger and emptier churches robbed people of that sense of fellowship and warmth and togetherness. And the image of the church was tarnished in the world. Eager unbelievers pointed at the Christians and said, how can we follow them? They don't even know what they believe themselves. And the church cannibalized its energies with its squabbles and its attempt to build stout bulwarks against other denominations. Instead of reaching out in mission and compassion, they preferred to conserve and preserve and defend our patch, our view, our identity. And all the while the world was waiting for the church to do what it was supposed to do. 
win hearts for Christ, to be one as the Father and the Son are one. So it's a pretty depressing picture. 22,000 or 33,000 denominations fighting over the same patch. But all is not lost. All is not lost. Since the Second World War, after centuries of aggravating and emphasizing divisions in the name of some spurious notion of truth that we have but they don't have, eventually the church came to its senses and began to think differently. It was initially the business of working together in the aftermath of the Second World War. The church discovered that doing the work of caring for other people in the name of Christ brought us together in a new and creative way. And the realization dawned that parading our divisions before an already cynical world was a pretty poor witness to the gospel. We needed to look again at what was supposed to be keeping us apart and try and find the things that actually we share, that bring us together and make our witness sharper and credible. All this gathering around a fresh focus on the call of Christ and the Gospel of John, as we read, that the church might be one, as he and his Father were one, so that all the world could see that we are his disciples. And so the ecumenical surge grew more pressing and definite, and the commitment of a divided church to finding its common purpose and life grew stronger. Of course, there's a price to pay when you do that. A movement towards each other or towards the centre meant demanded give and take. A willingness to let go and openness to the staggering possibility that actually maybe none of us have got it completely right. And there are things to borrow and things to lend. It meant admitting the shocking truth that maybe not everyone in heaven is going to be a Presbyterian singing from CH4. Nor indeed that all in heaven would be chirpy charismatics clapping in time to a mission praise medley. All of which I have to say is very good news indeed. The challenge to the denominations is to find the common ground and celebrate it. To allow diversity and celebrate it. To be flexible, not rigid. And perhaps above all, to be prepared to learn from other traditions and ways of being the church. And that means we refuse to nitpick. We concentrate on what really matters. What is of the essence. Rather than going to the stake. Or worse, taking other people to the stake. For what is merely peripheral. Accidental that arose out of some specific moment in history and then became locked into our thinking and encased in stone and then silver and then gold. We need to let go of some of those things. For example, we we love this place and we acknowledge the glory of the Reformation and what it rescued back then from a, a corrupting and misleading way of being the church. 
But we have to realise now that the Roman Catholic Church itself is reformed. It's a very different thing from what it was in 1516. The ancient prejudices and caricatures that have defined our dealings with each other are redundant and in disrepute. They may have had some currency many centuries ago, but they're not very helpful now in a very different religious context. We live in interesting times. I recall with some considerable sorrow back in the day how the abortive Scottish Church's initiative for unity was proposed. Unity between the Scottish Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church and the Church of Scotland. And it died a death. They wouldn't do it. People were too scared, didn't have enough faith, weren't prepared to make sacrifices. It's that people thing again that's unavoidable. People say, well, that's a signal, isn't it, that we're a long way from being where we would like to be. A failure of nerve, a missed opportunity. Inevitably, coming into the centre, getting close to Christ, casting off the things that are just ancient history now, is going to involve letting go of some things and taking on board some things. Whenever some kind of structural union between the churches takes place, it will still allow diversity. It will be carried through in a generous spirit that recognises the folly of allowing the church to be trapped in an irrelevant loyalty to a long-dead past. In the name of mission to the world, for the purpose of effective church witness, in obedience to the call of Christ that we be one, we are required to dismantle the barriers that our troubled history has built and to reach across in Christian love and offer each other the peace of Christ. And if that means things get a bit blurred and a bit loose, well, we've been rigid and unbending and proud for too long. We've tried the swaggering arrogance that insists that we are the people. And it hasn't worked very well. Whenever we do get together as churches for a celebration of what we have in Christ, these are precious, lovely moments. Next Sunday evening at the cathedral, we'll be doing that. Dozens, scores, hundreds of Christians gathering from different denominations with all their stories. But one thing will unite us, and that is our love for him. And here's something I've noticed, and you will have too. That those people who walk closest with Christ, and who are walking closest to the heart of the faith... They have no anxieties about those experiences of closer connection. They love it. They're happy to celebrate the oneness of Christ's people. Being close to him overcomes the anxieties. Perhaps there's a signpost there for us to follow. For those who walk closest to the heart of Christ, perfect love casts out fear overwhelms suspicion, gives courage for a different kind of tomorrow that by the grace of Christ will be 
Those who walk closest to the heart of Christ find that perfect love casts out fear and gives courage for a different kind of tomorrow that by the grace of Christ will come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.